There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. This is part two of the rapture controversy. There's no better way of starting out than to ask the question, where do we get the word rapture? It's not a biblical word. However, it does describe a biblical event. Where did it come from? Well, the Latin word repio is the word from which we get our English word rapture. And it means to seize or to snatch away. And it can mean in ecstasy of spirit or an actual removal from one place to another physically. And so the word rapture can mean to be carried away in spirit or in body. The rapture of the church, according to those who embrace a pre-tribulation rapture concept, is the catching away of the church from earth to a heavenly sphere. The rapture of the church for those who believe in a post-tribulation view of the coming of the Lord means to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, but to return with him to this earth. And so in both situations, it means to be caught up in both interpretations of this great last day event. It means to be snatched away from this physical world and supernaturally transformed at the coming of the Lord. The Greek word that is translated caught up is harpazo. That's H-A-R-P-A-Z-O. And it means also to snatch away or to seize forcefully. And it explains that Believers will be snatched away in a supernatural sense from mortal into immortality, from this natural body into a supernatural existence. It will be a grand event. I guarantee you it will be rapturous when it takes place. Now, the word harpazo is used in some unique ways in Scripture. For instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 through 4, Paul is talking about someone who was caught up into the third heaven. Now, it's pretty plain he's referring to himself, but he said, I knew a man in Christ 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. Only God knows such a one who was caught up, harpazo, into the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise. And again, the word harpazo. And he heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. One day I'm going to ask Paul what those inexpressible words were and why he even bothered to mention it and then said he can't tell us what they were. That just stirs my curiosity. But anyway, the other time harpazo is used, 
that is significant to this teaching is 1 Thessalonians 4.17. And it's talking about the coming of the Lord. And it says, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together. Harpazo, caught up with them in the clouds. And it's talking about the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That will be a joyous day. And I'm sure it will be a joyous day for those who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, for those who believe in a mid-tribulation rapture, for those who believe in a pre-wrath rapture, for those who believe, as I do, in a post-tribulation rapture. It's going to be a joyous event. And that's what we should agree on, that the ecstatic experience of being changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye is indescribable. And also in the book of Revelation chapter 12 verse 5, it talks about the man-child, and I won't go into a discussion of what that's a reference to, how the man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron and uh, was caught up unto God and to his throne. And again, the word is harpazo. Strangely, though, it was used of Philip in Acts chapter 8, verse 39, after he baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. And that was a fantastic story. He left a revival to go witness to one man. Sometimes God asks you to do illogical things and joined himself to a chariot, jumped up on the chariot. I wonder how acceptable that kind of behavior was in that day. And it was a person of uh, of governmental status from Ethiopia. He was a eunuch. And he happened to be, happened to be, it was not a coincidence, it was a God incidence. Isaiah 53 was what he was reading. And Philip said, do you understand what you're reading? He said, no, how can I understand it if someone doesn't explain it? And from Isaiah 53, he began explaining to him that Jesus, Yeshua, was the Messiah. He had just been crucified, buried, resurrected. And the Ethiopian eunuch said, here's water. What does hinder me to be baptized? Let's go for it. Well, he may not have said it exactly that way, but Philip baptized him. And then Acts 8.39 says, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, Harpazo, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. So when Harpazo, or this catching away, happened with Philip, it just translated him 35 miles away to Azotus, where he was found preaching the gospel. So it didn't necessarily mean being caught up into a heavenly state. Now, with Paul, if he was referring to himself when he was caught up into paradise, yes, that was a spiritually rapturous experience while he was apparently still in his body. And so it can be used a number of different ways. Now, does the Bible, though, teach the disappearing of the church or the appearing of the Lord? Because I don't find any scriptures that talk about how in that day the church will disappear. 
But I find many scriptures that talk about the Lord descending from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel. He'll come in flaming fire and all his own holy angels and every eye will see him. Every eye, including those who pierced him. So it's not going to be a secret coming and a secret catching away of the church so that they disappear and suddenly car wrecks and plane wrecks and all kinds of crazy things happen all around the world as a testimony that this forecasted event was true. I don't see that as happening the way we've seen it in many of our Christian films. Now, the second thing I want to ask you is, did the early church fathers teach a pre-tribulation rapture theory or mid-tribulation? Did they teach a pre-tribulation or a mid-tribulation rapture theory? No. And I can quote a few out of one of my many books on last day prophecies. I've got a whole shelf behind me that is lined with every imaginable viewpoint on this subject. I like to read everyone's viewpoint. I want a full round view. But in this particular book, for instance, I'll give you four quotes. Justin Martyr, who lived from the year 100 AD to 168 AD, said, the man of apostasy, and he's referring to the Antichrist, who speaks strange things against the Most High, shall venture to do unlawful deeds on the earth against us, the Christians. He didn't say we'd be absent. Another respected church father, Irenaeus, said, and they, and he's referring or making a comment on the ten kings that align themselves with the beast, for they shall lay Babylon waste and burn her with fire and shall give their kingdom to the beast and put the church to flight. He didn't say we'd be flying out of here ahead of time, he said that the ten, the ten kings that lay Babylon to waste would persecute the church. Tertullian, who, and uh, incidentally, Arrhenius uh, lived from 140 to 202 AD. Tertullian uh, lived from 150 to 220 AD. He said, the souls of the martyrs are taught to wait. He's referring to Revelation chapter 6. That the beast, the Antichrist, with his false prophet may wage war on the church of God. Mm. Hippolytus, who lived from 160 to 240 AD, said the 1,203 score days, the half of the week, during which the tyrant is to reign and persecute the church, which flees from city to city and seeks concealment in the wilderness among the mountains. Now, if you'll email me, pastormikeshreve at gmail.com, and again, I repeat, pastormikeshreve at gmail.com, if you will email me, I'll send you a list of many quotes from early church fathers, at least 10 or 15 and you can refer to them and find out what the church taught in the very beginning. So when did this doctrine of the rapture make its appearance? Now, I've heard a lot of people refer to Margaret MacDonald, who was born in Port Glasgow, uh, Scotland, 
1815, she was a charismatic type of person who functioned in the gifts of the Spirit. And I've read her prophecies, and they trace this idea of a pre-tribulation rapture theory back to her, but I haven't really seen it blatantly expressed in her prophecies that I've read. I think it goes back to other individuals primarily. For instance, Edward Irving, who lived from 1792 to 1834, he talked about two phases of the return of Jesus. Two phases of the return of Jesus. So this is just uh, less than, what, 300 years ago, about 260, 270, uh, no, uh, 270 years ago, okay, when he was born. And uh, who knows when he came up with this idea. John Nelson Darby promoted it heavily. He promoted and popularized the pre-tribulation rapture in 1827. So that's just about 200 years ago. Think of that. And Schofield popularized it through his Bible, which was a reference Bible, and it was the Bible of choice for pastors in that day. And he uh, kind of uh, expanded on what Darby taught and used it in the reference Bible quite heavily. And so it indoctrinated a whole generation of pastors, and so it became a very common belief, but it was not what the church originally believed. And you can check all these things out on the internet yourself. You can go and and read Margaret McDonald's prophecies that some people trace this back to, but even in that situation, if she was the source, that's just a couple of hundred years ago, two centuries ago, So let me tell you what I believe, and I believed this before I read anything on Margaret MacDonald or Darby or Schofield. I believed it because I feel like the Holy Spirit revealed this to me as I studied the Bible in the very beginning. Uh, Like many people in 1970 when I was saved, I was exposed to this idea through books like The Late Great Planet Earth and other books, and I looked at it and compared it to Scripture and looked at it, their claims, the way they use different passages and compared it in context in the Bible, and I never could see it. I never could embrace it. It just did not make sense. It sounded good. It would be wonderful to be caught up out of here before the Antichrist makes his appearance. I would love it if that was the case. However, I believe quite the opposite is going to be the greatest spiritual move of God among God's people that has ever been and the greatest harvest of souls that will ever take place. We're going to be here for that. But my next point, and this is point number four, is the mysterious words first and last and how those two words give us very strong insights into when this catching away, harpazo, this rapture, of the believers will take place when the dead in Christ will rise and the living believers will be harpazo, will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Notice the word first and the word last. And I'm going to take the last of those two words first. I hope I'm not confusing you. 
Let's focus on the word last. And it's going to prove that Jesus himself did not teach a pre-tribulation or a mid-tribulation rapture or a pre-wrath rapture for that matter. John chapter 6, verse 39 and 40. And all I'm going to do is quote scripture. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. He repeats this two more times. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. And finally, John 6, verse 54, those four quotes are all in the same chapter. Jesus said, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And of course, he's speaking spiritually The flesh was the word made flesh. So he's talking about partaking of the word, digesting the word into your inner being. And the life is in the blood and the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of life. And so I believe when he said, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, he's talking about eating the word and drinking in the spirit. And he said, he that eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. That's very plain. There is no day past the last day. He didn't say the last day before the seven-year tribulation period. He did not say the last day of the age of grace, and then there'll come a time of great tribulation on the planet for all those who have not accepted me. He carried the church all the way through to the last day. What about Paul's prophecy where he used the word last. And I believe this proves that Paul did not teach a pre-tribulation rapture or a mid-tribulation rapture or a pre-wrath rapture. Listen to what he said. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 50 through 53. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. A metamorphosis. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruption must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So, the big question is, when is the last trump. Well, we do know there are seven trumpets, which are probably more like shofars, possibly, but there are seven trumpets in the book of Revelation. And when the seventh trumpet is sounded, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. So those two things coincide at the seventh trumpet. There's an establishment of the kingdom of God in this world. And I personally believe that the seals, the trumpets, and the vials all tell the same story three times and end at the same place. Otherwise, it sounds like the world comes to an end three times in the book of Revelation. So 
Just like the creation story is told twice back in Genesis, and and it uh, brings out different details. So I believe the last trumpet is on the last day of this age. Now, I have heard people that use it metaphorically, and they compare it to the feasts, and I believe that you can learn a lot about the pattern of events in this world by looking at the feasts, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles, the Spring Feast, the Summer Feast, which is Pentecost, and the Fall Feast, which are the Feast of Trumpets, the first day of the seventh month, and then Yom Kippur, the tenth day, and then the Feast of Tabernacles, the fifteenth day through the twenty-second day. And the teaching that I've heard is that the last trumpet is speaking of the hundredth trumpet blast during the Feast of Trumpets, and the church is caught up then, and the rest of the feasts represent the judgment that is going to fall on the earth after that, and then finally God coming to earth once again and making this a paradise place. Well, it's not clearly spelled out there. You cannot establish a doctrine in Scripture by parables or metaphorical comparisons, those are used to enhance our understanding of things that are clearly spoken elsewhere. And there's absolutely no Scripture in the entire Bible that clearly, succinctly states that the church will be raptured seven years before the end of the age. You can't find one. You can use metaphorical comparisons. You can use various parables and interpret them to mean that, but you can't find it plainly spelled out. Now the word first. We've focused on the word last, first. Now let's focus on the word first, last. Again, I hope I'm not confusing you. Uh, The Antichrist must first be revealed before the church is caught up to meet the Lord. So it cannot happen prior to the revealing of the Antichrist. Where do I get that? Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Quite a few verses here. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, harpazo, being caught up to meet the Lord in the air, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or trouble either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means. Did you hear that? Let no one deceive you by any means, by a movie, by a book, by a sermon. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sits in the temple of God and proclaims himself or shows himself to be God. So he starts out saying, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto him, Then he says, don't be deceived, that day, what day? The day of our gathering together unto the Lord cannot happen until the man of sin is revealed. And the man of sin is a title for the Antichrist. He's also called the son of perdition. And the word perdition means destruction. 
And that's a title that's also given to Judas. Only two men in the Bible are referred to as the son of perdition, Judas and the Antichrist. And I'm sure it's a similar evil spirit that motivated Judas and will motivate the Antichrist. Then Paul said, do you not remember when I was still with you, I told you these things, and now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. Now, this is a mysterious part. He said, you know what is restraining, that he, referring to the man of sin, may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness, the King James Version says, the mystery of iniquity is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. I've heard many interpretations of what this means. What is he who restrains? Who is the one who restrains? And then he's taken out of the way, and then the man of sin can be revealed. I personally believe it's the Holy Spirit that is holding back the spirit of Antichrist. It would have manifested fully with Adolf Hitler if it could have. It would have manifested fully with, uh, with others who uh, defiled the temple, say, for instance, prior to the coming of the Lord or Titus after the coming of the Lord. But, and there have been Caesars and others, world leaders that sought to be uh, prominent in that kind of position and deified in that kind of position. But there's been a restraining power that has prevented a full manifestation of the Antichrist until he is taken out of the way. And, and I've heard it taught that when the church is taken out of the world, the Holy Spirit is taken out of the world also. And that's when the restraining force is lifted and the Antichrist can manifest. But this passage said it can't happen until the Antichrist does his work and then the church can be caught out. So that can't work. And besides, it did not say that the restrainer, which again, I believe is the Holy Spirit, is taken out of the world. It says it's taken out of the way. So the Holy Spirit, in a sense, is moved out of the way so that this demonic power, this satanic force, can come in its full fury and take that kind of prominent global position of influence by possessing the Antichrist. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Can you imagine what a spectacular day when the Lord comes in flaming fire and one prophet said the sun will be like the light of seven days. It will be like moonlight multiplied seven times over. The light of the sun will be like the light of seven days. The light of the moon will be like the light of the sun in the day when the Lord comes to heal the breach of his people or the separation between God and human beings. He's going to heal that breach. But the lawless one comes according to the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. The lie 
is the impersonating of the messianic figure, being a false messiah, a false Christ, that the world will be gathered to and they will worship him as the messiah. Think of that that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And the Bible said, if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. And how could that be even an issue if we weren't here during that time of deception? Now, another incident where the word first is used in a very revealing way. Those martyred during the reign of the Antichrist will be in the first resurrection, according to Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. There is no resurrection before the first resurrection. If it's the first resurrection, it's the first resurrection. Isn't that logical? Listen to it now. I'm going to read it verbatim. Revelation 20, verses 4 and 5. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark in their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished." This is the first resurrection, right out of Scripture. Thus saith the Lord. Then verse 6, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. May I remind you, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, The dead in Christ must rise first. Let me read that. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So they're not asleep in the grave. Jehovah Witnesses want you to believe that, or Jehovah's Witnesses want you to believe that. They're coming with him in a soulish form, a spiritual form. Those who sleep with Jesus, in Jesus, he will bring with him. And this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. What's that shout going to be? I wouldn't be surprised if he shouts the thing he's been declaring. Whenever he comes to earth, he visited Moses in a burning bush and said, I am that I am. When he walked on the earth in a human form, he said, I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Before Abraham was, I am. And when they came to get him in the garden, he said, whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. And they fell to the ground. Well, that denotes eternal existence, no beginning and no end. I would not be surprised if when he descends with a shout, he declares, I am that I am. (laughs) And with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, the last trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise First, there your word is again. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet them in the clouds 
to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will ever be with the Lord. So my point is this. If the first resurrection, and there's no resurrection before the first, if it contains those who have been martyred during the terror reign of the Antichrist, it cannot happen seven years before this time of trouble hits the earth. You have the beginning of sorrows, and then you have the great tribulation. And most agree it will probably last for seven years. And how can we be caught up out of here prior to that time if we can't be caught up, we who are alive at the coming of the Lord, we can't be caught up before the dead in Christ rise. So if the first resurrection contains those who are martyred, then we must be destined to pass through those hard times in the last days until the last day, as Jesus taught in John chapter 6, the last 24-hour period of this age of grace prior to the coming of the kingdom of God to this world. I believe that's sufficient proof, but we're still going to continue teaching this subject, and there's some powerful biblical references that I will bring to you in the next program. But remember, I told you, if you will email me at pastormikeshreve at gmail.com, I will send you a list of quotes from early church fathers that verify that they believed the church would go all the way through the tribulation period. And don't forget to order my book, In Search of the True Light, that compares the beliefs of over 20 religions. Visit our YouTube website, youtube.com slash Mike Shreve Ministries. This teaching that is offered as an audio podcast will also be offered as a video podcast there. Thank you for joining me. I look forward to our next time together. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shreve's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family. 